Well, how many of you are excited to see the snow yesterday? Few of you? <laughs> yeah. I like that response. You know, I've generally found that there are two kinds of people in our world. There are those who, who love the, the changing of the seasons and the falling of the snow and, and those that uh, would just rather it uh, stay away a little bit longer. If you're anything like me and our family, though, uh, as soon as we see that first sign of snow, uh, our family begins to get into the holiday spirit, and uh, we start looking forward to Christmas time. Uh, we actually had Christmas music playing in the background of the house yesterday, and my daughter Addie started wrapping Christmas presents, and I'm not even kidding you, she's wrapping Christmas presents. And, uh, you know, there are some people who say, you know what, you don't start celebrating Christmas till after Thanksgiving. Well, that's just not the way it works in my family. I mean, I, I married a woman who loves Christmas, and she would celebrate Christmas year-round if we could. I mean, we're, we're on vacation in the summertime, the middle of July, and she's shopping at Christmas stores, looking forward to the next holiday season. And uh, I, But I've come to really love and s- the celebration of Christmas, especially uh, with our family and with, with our kids. Uh, one of my favorite things about Christmas time are the many holiday movies that... Uh, that are out. Uh, I actually tweeted my wife, or I texted my wife the other day. I saw something on Twitter, uh, the Hallmark Channel and their Christmas movies. They're coming out with 20 brand new Christmas movies this year. My wife and I are super excited about that. <laughs> but, uh, but we love Christmas time. Some of my favorite movies at Christmas time that, that we watch every year as a family, you got classics like The Christmas Carol and Ebenezer Scrooge, Bah Humbug, and then you have George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, Home Alone, of course, right? Macaulay Culkin, who could forget that great movie? You have Ralphie, right? Longing for the new Red Ryder BB gun. You got The Grinch Who Stole Christmas and Will Ferrell's Elf, one of the more recent classics that have come out. But it's very interesting when you think about these various movies that so many of us enjoy at Christmas time. One of the things that all of these movies share in common is a common theme. And it's a theme that basically declares true joy in life is never found in simply pursuing our own selfish desires. Rather, genuine satisfaction, true joy in life is always found in looking beyond ourselves. Now, our culture today would generically call that theme the Christmas spirit. And the Christmas spirit is all about, you know, not looking out for number one, but, but looking out for others and enjoying our relationships with others. But what many people don't realize today is that this theme was borrowed directly from the truths of Scripture. This is a biblical theme. The calling to look beyond ourselves, to look to the needs of others and our relationships with others. And this is a message that King Solomon himself discovered. It's a message that he has a lot to say about in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we have been looking at Solomon's teachings on the journey to joy and his discovery of where true joy in life is found. If you recall, Solomon was the the king over Israel, the wisest man who ever lived, and God blessed Solomon incredibly. He blessed him with wealth. He blessed him with, with all kinds of possessions and resources. But sadly, Solomon decided to pursue joy in life. 
apart from God. And Solomon took his eyes off of the Lord and began to look at all of the stuff of the world, money and power and sex and stuff and possessions. And and he looked to everything but God for joy and meaning in life. But what Solomon discovered and, and what we're fortunately blessed with in the book of Ecclesiastes is his wisdom, having pursued joy in everything apart from God, Solomon, at the end of the day, came back to pen this incredible book describing how nothing but God satisfies. True joy is never found in anything apart from a genuine relationship of love with the Lord. And today Solomon is going to continue to speak on this theme for us. Solomon is going to highlight for us today the reality of how looking out for number one, looking out for our own selfish wants and needs and interests, never satisfies. In fact, we're going to see just the opposite, that looking out for number one leaves us very empty, very sad, very alone. Today we're going to see three truths in our passages that we're going to look at. We're going to be looking at a series of passages from chapters 4 all the way through chapter 6 where Solomon speaks about the vanity of me, the meaninglessness of pursuing our own selfish wants and interests. The first truth we're going to see this morning is Solomon tells us that the prosperous life alone is vanity. The prosperous life alone is vanity. In 1964, the the Beatles penned their famous song, Can't Buy Me Love. And if you recall the words of that great tune, the Beatles sang, I don't care too much for money, because money can't buy me love. It's very true, friends. But sadly, it's a lesson that far too many people have to learn the hard way. My younger brother Jared was on a flight recently and he shared a story with me after this flight. He had ended up sitting next to this young man who by the world standards appeared to have it all. He was a young guy in his late 30s. He owned his own company. He owned luxury apartments both in Los Angeles and New York. He had all the money he could want. He drove fancy cars. He wore nice clothes. But as my brother talked about him and his life and all of his pursuits, this young man admitted to my brother that he was desperately lonely. He had everything the world says leads to happiness and joy, and yet he was all alone. He didn't have any true, deep, meaningful relationships in his life. And how sad that is, friends. He had lived his life in pursuit of his own selfish interests. It was all about me. And he had come to realize that he was alone. You know, Solomon has a lot to say about the life that's all about me. And this morning, we're going to take a tour of Solomon's wisdom on this matter. In chapters 4 through 6, Solomon begins by telling us the important truth and Chapter 4, verse 4, that the pursuit of envy or envy is vanity. The word vanity, again, that we've been looking at in Ecclesiastes in the Hebrew, the word vanity is havel. It means a breath, a mist, a vapor, meaningless. And Solomon says that envy is vanity. 
It's a dangerous motivation in the pursuit of joy. Chapter 4, verse 4, Solomon says, Then I saw all toil, that all toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon says, if your motivation for joy in life is envy, looking at what others have, desiring what others have, seeking out those things for yourself, Solomon says you're going to be sorely disappointed. Trying to keep up with the Joneses is a tiring race to run. I saw this lesson in my own life just recently. Even even us pastors can fall victim to the lies of envy. My daughter Addie's been playing tennis this fall with school, her first year playing tennis, and uh, she's in seventh grade. She's had a great time playing tennis, and she's done really well in it. And, and uh, at the beginning of the season, we, uh, we went out to Dick's Sporting Goods, and we bought her a, a nice entry-level tennis racket. It was about $25. And, you know, I'm thinking, okay, if she doesn't like it, no big deal. We haven't lost a lot of money. And if she ends up liking it and doing well, we can always, you know, get her something better down the road. Well, well, she's had a great season. She's done really well with tennis. And so as she's progressed over the course of the season, I've been researching and looking online for, for new rackets for Addie to help take her to the next level. And, and I sort of had had my eyes set on this racket that was in the $50, $60 range. And, you know, and I'm reading all the reviews about it. I'm getting all excited to buy this racket. And then a couple of weeks ago, we show up at practice and one of her girlfriends has a brand new racket. But she's got a $100 racket. <laughs> and now I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. I mean, Annie's better than that girl. She needs the $100 racket. So now I start dreaming about getting my daughter the $100 racket. But then last week I talked to one of Addie's coaches and he recommended this $200 racket. (laughs) But you see, friends, envy is a dangerous motivation because there's always something more and there's never enough. And if you're motivated by envy, Solomon wants you to know you're never going to be satisfied. You're always going to be wanting more. Solomon next tells us not only is envy vanity, but he goes on and he declares that greed is vanity. Greed is vanity. If you're putting your hope in money and stuff, Solomon wants you to know you're never going to have enough. In chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Solomon says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. In other words, the the answer is not laziness. It's not to just give up and and not be productive at all, not work at all. He's not saying that. Then he goes on in verse 6, he says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. In other words, if you're not satisfied with one handful, if you can't find contentment with one handful, and you think joy is going to be found and stuffing your hands full to the brim, you're just going to be stuck in this constant cycle of toiling and striving, striving after the wind. Solomon goes on in chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, to speak more to this theme. He says in verse 10 of chapter 5, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. 
Friends, you're never going to have enough. If that's your motivation for joy in life, if money is your motivation for joy, Solomon says you're never going to have enough. The wealthiest man in the history of the United States, John D. Rockefeller, the founder of Standard Oil, to this day still the wealthiest man in American history. A reporter once asked John Rockefeller, which million that you've earned was your favorite? Rockefeller famously answered, my next million. Never enough. Always pursuing more. Solomon goes on here in chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. In verse 11, he says, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, friends, some of you who own businesses or manage numbers of people will know the reality of what Solomon is saying here. Solomon is saying, look at the more you attain, the more wealth you attain, the more those who eat your wealth will increase. And what he means by that, friends, is that there is great responsibility for the one who has much. And with that responsibility comes lots of stress and lots of trouble and lack of sleep. I have a friend who is an owner of a company here in the Twin Cities. And his company is very successful. He's done very well. But he will tell you that it brings a lot of stress. And his greatest source of stress as a business owner is the responsibility he has for all of the people working for him in his company. Because he knows that their livelihood depends on the success of his company. And so when he has to lay someone off, he, he loses sleep over that. He struggles with health because of that. Because as goods increase, so do those who eat those goods. Your responsibilities to others increase. And Solomon says that brings toil and trials. Solomon might also be thinking here about the hangers-on that come along with having lots of wealth. You know, as Puff Daddy once sang, more money, more problems. And sadly, we've seen many stories of people who accumulate great wealth, and that wealth is quickly eaten away by their entourage and their friends and their family. It's very interesting. This past week, I was reading about the NFL Do you realize, friends, that within two years of leaving the NFL, 78% of NFL players find themselves in financial hardships? These are men who make millions of dollars, and yet nearly 80% of them, within two years of leaving the league, will find themselves in financial hardship. One of my favorite quarterbacks growing up was Bernie Kosar of the Cleveland Browns, all-pro quarterback. You may recall his famous battles with John Elway in the playoffs. Bernie Kosar made millions of dollars playing football. He made millions more in endorsement deals. But just a few years after retiring from football, Bernie Kosar declared bankruptcy. In the court proceedings for his bankruptcy, it was reported that at one point he was paying for the cell phone plans of over 60 people. Friends, family, all wanting a piece 
of his wealth. See, Solomon says, look, if, if money and stuff is your motivation, you're never going to be at peace. Solomon goes on and he says not only is envy vanity and greed is vanity, but he goes on, he says, thirdly, that power, fame, and influence is vanity. In chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, Solomon tells this parable of this young man who rose to power, a rags to riches story. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, of all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also was vanity and a striving after the wind. Here we see this rags to riches story. This young man who rose from nothing to become king. And he was powerful and famous and all the people of the land looked to him and and joy and gladness and appreciation. And yet Solomon says, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Fame is fleeting, friends. Power and influence here today, gone tomorrow. You see, our human nature is always to long for the next latest greatest. We see this every four years in our own political cycles here in America. Every election season, don't we see it? One candidate steps up and they're the darlings of the media. And then a month later, a new candidate comes forward and all of a sudden everybody's forgotten about the other person and now so-and-so is the new latest greatest. We're always looking for the next person, the next latest greatest to put our hopes in. Fame, power, influence is fleeting. I mean, think about even our president today. Everybody here knows who our president is, right? President Trump. But friends, do you know who our president was 100 years ago? Do you even care? Probably not. Woodrow Wilson, who cares? And you know something, a hundred years from today, there's going to be another preacher preaching from the book of Ecclesiastes, and he's going to ask his congregation, do you know who was president a hundred years ago? And you know what? They're not going to care. Solomon says that power and fame and influence is fleeting. If that's what you're putting your hope in, for, hope in friends, you're striving after the wind. It's havail. It's vanity. Here today, gone tomorrow. Solomon next tells us that financial security is vanity. Are you putting your hope in money, friends, for your security, for your joy in life? Solomon says, be very careful. In chapter 5, verses 13 through 17, Solomon says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but has nothing in his hands. Here's a man who who toiled and worked and, and, and accumulated wealth. And yet all of his money was lost in a bad business venture. And at the end of the day, he had nothing left to leave to his son. It was all gone. He had put his hope for security and money. And now it was gone. 
Solomon goes on to, to speak on this theme in chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. He says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This man's lost his possessions, his wealth. Somebody has stolen them from him. Everything he has worked for here today, gone tomorrow. And Solomon's point here, friends, in both of these stories is that putting your hope in financial security is vanity. Sadly, many in our nation learned this lesson the hard way not too long ago. Many of us here in this room this morning lived through what has come to be known as the Great Recession. The Great Recession of 07 to 2009. Here in, in America, unemployment rose to 10%. Home prices fell 30%. The stock market dropped over 50%. Millions of people lost their entire life savings. I remember in my own family, we had just purchased our home the year before the Great Recession. Within nine months, our home depreciated in value over $60,000. I said to Kim, I hope you like living here because we're not going anywhere anytime soon. But you know something? Over the next year, we had people move into our neighborhood who were buying the exact same home for fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 less than I paid for ours. And I remember thinking, this isn't fair. But you know something, friends? That's Solomon's point. Life under the sun in this fallen world isn't always fair. And so if you're putting your hope and finances as the basis of your joy and security in life, friends, placing your hope in money is a dangerous bet. Solomon says there's got to be something more. If you're looking for joy and prosperity alone, you're not going to find it. In fact, Solomon says you'll probably find just the opposite. The second truth Solomon speaks to in our passage this morning, he goes on to declare that the self-focused life alone is vanity. The self-focused life alone is vanity. And here Solomon tells us that chasing the dream without others in our lives, without relationships to enjoy those things with, is all vanity. In chapters 4, verses 7 through 8, Solomon says again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. You know, the first time I read this passage and this particular story, I immediately thought of Ebenezer Scrooge. And Charles Dickens' famous The Christmas Carol. If you recall the story, Ebenezer Scrooge, this wealthy businessman who has no time for relationships, his life revolves around his business and his money and his possessions. And he's a greedy, just shallow, evil man. And one evening, his old partner who has passed away, Jacob Marley, appears to him in his sleep. 
And Jacob Marley is weighed down in heavy chains and he tells Scrooge that he has been confined to a life and eternity of roaming the earth, weighed down by these chains because of his past greediness. And he warns Ebenezer Scrooge not to let the same thing happen to him. And he tells him that very night you're going to be visited by three spirits. And that night, Scrooge is visited first by the ghost of Christmas past who takes him and, and shows him his past life when he was a young man. When, when he had the joy of a beautiful woman in his life who he was hoping to marry, and yet he forsake, forsook that young lady to pursue wealth in his business. Later, the, the ghost of Christmas present takes him and he shows him into the family room of his Worker Bob Cratchit. And here he sees this family who has literally nothing. And their young boy, Tiny Tim, handicapped. And the Cratchit family sits around the dinner table with their measly portions. And they rejoice and give thanks for what God has given them. And Scrooge says, bah humbug. And then later that night, the ghost of Christmas future comes by. And the ghost of Christmas future takes Scrooge to a graveyard. And there he points out a headstone that says Ebenezer Scrooge. And Scrooge sees all of his old business partners gathered around the tombstone. And yet his business partners aren't celebrating his life. His business partners are doling out Scrooge's money to one another, handing out his property and possessions among themselves. Scrooge wakes up from his dreams and comes to the realization that he has been pursuing life and greed and selfishness and all the wrong things. And so he repents. He repents of his selfish ways and changes his whole life. It's a great story, friends. And it's a story that was directly influenced by God's Word. Charles Dickens, who wrote The Christmas Carol, was a committed Christian with a high respect and value for Scripture. And I can imagine that he might have had Solomon's words in his mind as he penned the character of Ebenezer Scrooge. See, chasing the dream without others to share it with is vanity, Solomon says. And this is why Solomon goes on next in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 4 to tell us that we were made to experience joy in community. In verses 9 through 12, Solomon says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their work. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Solomon says here that two are better than one. Now, if you've ever attended a wedding that I've performed, this is one of my favorite passages to preach in wedding ceremonies. To share with a young couple, two are better than one. This was God's design for us to live in relationships. But understand this, friends. This isn't simply a principle for married couples. Here in our passage, Solomon is talking about life and relationships in general for all of us. God made us to go through life and experience joy in community, in relationships with others. We were never meant to do this life on our own. 
Solomon says we need friends. Why? Because friends help us in our business. They support us in our time of need. They sustain us when we are going through trials and tribulations. They defend us when we are under attack. All of us need friends. We need relationships. Some of my favorite years in my life were high school. I loved high school. One of the reasons I had such a great time in high school is I had a ton of friends. And I'm not saying that to make you think like I was Mr. Popular or anything, but I had a lot of friends. And the reason I had a lot of friends is because I remember my dad told me very early on in my life that, Jason, everybody wants to be loved. And everybody's looking for a friend. And I came to realize that. And and so while I was kind of a jock in high school, I was in the athletic group, you know, I hung out with those guys, but I had friends in every other group in our school. I had friends with the drama kids. I had friends with the band kids. I had friends with the skaters and the punks. I I would sit and eat lunch with all of these groups. I had friends in all these groups. and, And my friends would ask me, Jason, how do you have so many friends? And I would just say, look at it. Everybody wants to have a friend. And if you go out of your way to make a friend, you're going to find a friend. It's like that famous old saying, I went out to look for a friend and they were nowhere. I went out to be a friend and they were everywhere. Friends, that's so true. That's what Solomon is saying here in our passage this morning. Two are better than one. Not only that, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. In other words, two friends are great, but three are even better. We were made for relationships. God made us to experience joy in community and relationships because He is a relational God. And we were made in His image. Friends, I want to tell you, if you're looking for connection today, There's no better place to find those genuine, meaningful relationships than here in the church. If you're here at church this morning and you're hungry for relationships and friends in your life, I'd encourage you, join one of our adult Bible fellowship groups. Try out one of our small groups. Attend the next men's advance or the next women's retreat. There are people here who would love to connect with you and help you to experience the joy of fellowship in the community of God. And friends, Christians, this is our responsibility. Jesus said the two greatest commandments, love God and love others. And so we need to remember we are commissioned, we are called to be a welcoming, inviting community. Take the opportunity to meet somebody today that you don't know. Invite a family that you've never spent time with out for lunch after church. Build those relationships because all of us are looking for fellowship and friendship. It's how God designed us. We were never made to go through life alone. The third truth Solomon conveys in our passages this morning is that the finite life alone is vanity. In other words, man without God is vanity. In the mid-20th century, following the horrors of the two world wars and the Holocaust, and with a growing Cold War and a rapidly expanding nuclear arms race. There arose a philosophy by the name of existentialism that came to prominence in the Western world. Existentialism is simply a fancy philosophical word that means the meaning of existence. 
And these existentialist philosophers declared that there is no God, there is no supernatural, humanity is just an accident, men and women are alone in the universe. This philosophy rose to popularity in 1966 with Time Magazine's famous cover story, Is God Dead? Talking about the rise of this existential worldview. Jacques Minot, the French existentialist philosopher, he once declared, man is merely an accident whose number came up on the universal roulette wheel. There is no meaning to anything. Everything is ultimately absurd and meaningless. Wow. Doesn't that just make you feel special this morning? John Paul Sartre, the famous French philosopher, existentialist, he said, no finite point has meaning without an infinite reference point. No finite point, man, has any meaning if there's not an infinite reference point, an eternal God who gives our lives meaning. If we are simply accidents evolved out of slimy algae, then what's the meaning and purpose of life? John Paul Sartre would go on to write his autobiography and title it Nausea. He said, life is nauseous. It's sickening if there is no God. And friends, please understand this morning, it is this philosophy that has filtered its way down throughout our culture over the past generation. In the academy, in our public schools, in pop culture, in the media, this philosophy has given rise to the absurdity of postmodern thought and its denial of absolute truth and ultimately has given rise to today's post-Christian culture, which is seeking to purge every aspect of our nation's historical Judeo-Christian roots. See, friends, where we are today is no accident. Our culture is reaping the fruit of existentialism. Hopelessness, despair, hatred, tribalism, violence, immorality, on and on. All of these are symptomatic of a culture that has turned its back on God and His revealed truth for our lives. See, friends, when you say there is no God and man is just an animal, then why are we surprised when we turn on the news at night and see men and women living like animals? Where we are today is no accident. As Sartre recognized, the finite life alone, man without God, is vanity. And this is why Solomon points us to a greater hope. Solomon, in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, tells us that true joy, true joy in life, the journey to joy, friends, the destination, it's only found in contentment with God. In chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, Solomon says this, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. In other words, friends, life is a gift from God. If you don't recognize that, you will never understand the source of true joy. He goes on in verse 20, For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Solomon is saying here, friends, that for the person who centers their life on God in a relationship with him, the concerns of life aren't going to overwhelm you. 
the cares of life aren't going to overwhelm you. You're not going to worry about the circumstances of life because you have discovered the secret of true contentment. It's found in a relationship with our Creator God. It's like the Apostle Paul declared in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Friends, this passage isn't just about scoring touchdowns in your football game. Paul is talking about the secret to true joy in life. It comes when you're centered on your relationship with God. And Solomon says, for the person who's centered in their relationship with God, God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. That's a great promise to hold on to, friends. Do you know that joy today? Is your life centered today upon your relationship with your creator, God? Solomon says, apart from him, everything else is vanity. We were never made to live the self-centered life the self-focused life. True life is found in relationship with others, in relationship with our Creator God. And I hope you know that joy today. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the powerful wisdom here of King Solomon. And I pray today, Jesus, that each and every one of us would take his wisdom to heart, that we would reject the lies of this world that tell us to pursue life and joy and putting me as number one, pursuing our own wants and needs and interests, and that we might find true joy walking in relationships of love with others and ultimately our true joy in a relationship with you, our Creator God. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us in your death on the cross so that we could be reconciled to you and know that true joy. And I pray that each one of us would praise your name for your amazing grace. And that we would live our lives with such joy and gladness that others might see the reality of the true hope, the true meaning, the true fulfillment that is found in you. God, may we share that good news with others because we live in a world today that so desperately is searching for joy. And yet they're looking in all the wrong places. How vain is life apart from God? Help us, God, to be your ambassadors, your ambassadors of joy, your ambassadors of hope and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.